the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Today we're talking with uh, Nancy Piercy. She's the off, uh, author, rather, most recently of Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. One of the best books on the subject from a Christian perspective. Uh, and we'll talk with her later this hour. Well, four U.S. citizens were killed, two others injured Saturday. We're just now learning when Taliban gunmen stormed the Intercontinental uh, Hotel in Kabul, Afghanistan. At least 22 people were killed during the hours-long assault. The State Department confirmed uh, today that the deaths adding to the United States strongly uh, condemns the uh, January 20th attack. Um, were uh, a complete surprise. Uh, we offer our deepest condolences to the families and friends of those who were killed and wish for the speedy recovery of those wounded, the State Department spokesman Heather uh, uh, Nauert uh, said. Out of respect for the families of the deceased, we have no further comment. Six Taliban militants stormed Kabul's Intercontinental Hotel in suicide vests last weekend. The 13-hour um, siege ended when Afghan security killed the last of the militants. Their goal was to kill foreigners and Afghan officials, according to investigators. Among the dead were 14 foreigners. In addition to uh, the Americans killed in that attack, six Ukrainians, two Venezuelan pilots for uh, Cam Air, and a citizen of Kazakhstan and a citizen of Germany also were killed, officials said. There's no word of how badly wounded the two injured Americans were. And there was an attack on the the Feed the Children um, relief workers as well, leaving two dead, and they have rather saved the children, uh, and they have closed their uh, their offices. An FBI informant, we're being told, has apparently informed Congress that a secret society at the FBI was holding secret meetings off-site after the election of Donald Trump. Senator Ron Johnson called it corruption of the highest levels of the FBI. That secret society, as it's now being called, we have an informant that talks about a group that were holding secret meetings off site. There is um, so much smoke here. Now, they haven't yet found the fire, but that's what the uh, focus of attention, at least at present, is, among other things. This comes after text messages between FBI counterintelligence agent Peter Stroke and senior FBI lawyer, uh, lawyer rather Lisa Page. His paramour revealed that a secret society of officials within the FBI met the day after the election of Donald Trump to plot against the president-elect. Now, how significant is it that these two are uh, in Engaged in a conversation uh, related to that. Are there others involved? Is there a fire associated with this smoke? Uh, a secret society, uh, Brett Baer asked in an in a interview of the congressman, uh, secret uh, meetings offside of the Justice Department, are, um, and you have an informant saying that? Yes, uh, the representative answered. Uh, matter of factly, is there anything more about that, Brett Baer asked? No, we have to dig into it. This is not a distraction. Again, this is... Uh, bias, potentially corruption at the highest levels of the FBI, 
uh, he declared. Well, by the way, he added Robert Mueller uh, used to run the FBI. He is in no position to do an investigation over this kind of misconduct. He said uh, the controversy surrounding the FBI have reached the point at which a second special counsel is warranted. We talked a bit about that yesterday. And he concluded saying, I think at this point in time, we probably should be looking at a special counsel to undertake this investigation. But Congress is going to have to continue to dig. When you see this kind of bias and corruption in the FBI, you have to ask the question, are there similar individuals, highly biased political operatives, burrowed into the Department of Justice as well? Does Attorney General uh, Sessions really have a department he can rely on and trust as well? Again, this is based on the email exchange of two former employee, well, one's a current employee, the other a former employee, uh, and whether or not what they said to one another is credible if it goes beyond the two of them. Again, um, smoke, but fire not yet uh, discovered. Meanwhile, um, the GOP is escalating new law enforcement probes as the Russian inquiry is heating up. Uh, Mueller now uh, focuses on the president, lawmakers. Uh, He wants to level new charges of bias and even potential criminal misconduct are uh, some saying are in his sights, although you're not hearing from him directly. So a lot of this is speculation in terms of his focus. But there are new signs that special counsel Robert Mueller is pursuing an obstruction of justice case against the president's Republicans in Congress have intensified their own investigation of the Justice Department and FBI's handling of inquiries into Trump's ties to Russia as the plot thickens. Uh, Yesterday, uh, they brought several uh, dramatic developments in the Russian saga, including the news that Mueller recently interviewed Attorney General Jeff Sessions, the first cabinet member known to be questioned in that investigation. The New York Times also reported that former FBI Director James Comey was interviewed by Mueller last year, and some are suggesting he needs to come back to the Hill to testify before, well, whomever. There are so many investigations going on simultaneously. But even as Mueller showed apparent momentum, Republicans made new charges of political bias. I've just mentioned Uh, Representative Bob Goodlatte, chairman of the House committee that oversees the Justice Department and FBI, alleged an anti-Trump conspiracy by FBI agents whose text message exchanges have been made public in selective bursts by GOP lawmakers. Some of these texts are very disturbing, he says. They illustrate a conspiracy on the part of some people, and we want to know a lot more about that. Well, they've been particularly incensed by a new revelation um, that the FBI has uh, five months of text messages between a senior counterintelligence agents in the Bureau uh, who dismissed the uh, uh, Mueller's team for unspecified reasons in July. And FBI attorney Lisa Page, uh, um, and they appear to be missing what's in those uh, emails is easy to speculate since they're not present, uh, but they do cover a rather strategic period of activity from the moment the Mueller uh, probe was um, was begun uh, right up to the present. So uh, that is a an element of the investigation that is uh, being speculated upon as well. Well, during the financial crisis, the federal government bailed out banks. It declared too big to fail. Michael Goodwin writes, fearing their bankruptcy might trigger economic Armageddon, the feds propped them up with taxpayer cash. Something similar is happening now in the FBI, he suggests, with the Washington wagon circling the agency to protect it from charges of corruption. This time, the appropriate tagline is too big to believe. 
Yet each day brings credible reports suggesting there is a massive scandal involving the top ranks of America's premier law enforcement agency. The reports, which feature talk among agents of a secret society and suddenly missing text messages, point to the existence both of a cabinet dedicated to, or rather a cabal, dedicated to defeating Donald Trump in 2016, and of a plan to let Hillary Clinton skate free in the classified email probe. If either one is true, and there's an if at this point, and I believe both probably are, would mean FBI leaders betrayed the uh, the nation by abusing their power in a bid to pick the president. If either one is true, and I believe both probably are, he writes, it would mean FBI leaders betrayed the nation by abusing their powers in a bid to pick the president. More support for the uh, this view involves the FBI's use of the Russian dossier on Trump that was paid for by the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. It's almost certain that the FBI used the dossier to get FISA court warrants to spy on Trump's associates, meaning it used the opposition research of the party in power to convince the court to let it spy on the candidate of the other party, likely without telling the court of the dossier's political link. Well, it uh, goes on and on, but this is what uh, has captured much of the attention in Washington, and we'll see whether or not it actually goes um, goes anywhere constructive moving forward. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Nancy Piercy. She's the author of Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life. She is a two-time winner of the ECPA Gold Medallion Award. She's been hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. She's a best-selling author, the speaker who serves as professor of apologetics and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. She also is the editor-at-large of the Piercy Report and a fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Uh, She'll be joining us to talk about her uh, latest book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Well, thousands of FBI cell phones were apparently affected by the technical glitch that the Department of Justice says prevented five months worth of text messages between FBI officials Peter Stroke and Lisa Page from being stored or uploaded into the Bureau's active system. Federal law enforcement officials are saying and many are questioning the timing of it. But the missing messages have been at the center of the storm of controversy on Capitol Hill after the DOJ notified congressional committees that there is a gap in records between December. 14th and May 17th. Stroke and Page are under scrutiny after it was revealed that the former um, team members of the Mueller investigation exchanged a series of uh, texts uh, during the presidential campaign. The gap in records covered a crucial period, raising suspicion among GOP lawmakers as to how those messages disappeared. Um, The glitch affected the phones of nearly 10 percent of the FBI's 35,000 employees, they uh, were being told. Senior Department of Justice officials uh, told Fox News that they're taking steps to possibly recover the text from the appropriate cell phone carriers. The same officials said that they're also making every effort to track down the physical cell phones in question so they could be subject to a forensic review. The missing messages have also caused problems for the Department of Justice of Inspector uh, of the Inspector General, Senate Homeland Security Committee Chairman Ron Johnson and the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley have sent a letter to the Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, noting that the IG's office said in, on December the 13th that it had all the messages between the pair, 
between November 30th through July the 28th of 2017. Lawmakers later learned of the five-month gap. Well, the lawmakers went to the IG's office to reconcile those two points. The five-month period of missing messages covers a period of time that includes the president's inauguration, the firing of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and FBI Director James Comey, and the standing up of uh, former FBI uh, Director Robert Mueller uh, as special counsel to investigate the alleged uh, Trump campaign collusion with Russian officials during the 2016 election. So we'll, um, again, continue to follow this rather messy business uh, as it proceeds. In other news, the Justice Department uh, today threatened to subpoena 23 jurisdictions if they don't turn over information about their sanctuary policies. And that triggered a backlash from mayors across the country who pulled out of a White House meeting that had been scheduled. In letters to New York City, Chicago, San Francisco and other jurisdictions, the Justice Department demanded records relating to whether these localities are unlawfully restricting information sharing by law enforcement officers with federal immigration authorities. I continue to urge all jurisdictions under the review to reconsider policies that place the safety of their communities and their residents at risk. That's what Attorney General Jeff Sessions said in a statement uh, going on to say that protecting criminal aliens from federal immigration authorities defies common sense and undermines the rule of law. Well, the letter drew a fiery response from several Democratic mayors, including New York City uh, Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio, who said they uh, they would boycott a planned working session with the president at the White House on Wednesday. I will not be attending today's meeting at the White House, he said, after uh, at uh, Donald Trump's Department of Justice decided to renew their racist assault on our immigration communities, de Blasio tweeted. It doesn't make us safer and it violates America's core values. I wish we could figure out what those core values are. I keep hearing them referenced by virtually every side of every issue. Um, So we'll have to see if we can figure that out. Anyway, New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu, uh, who serves as the president uh, of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, also said that he would boycott that meeting. And of course they did. Unfortunately, the Trump administration's decision to threaten mayors and demonize immigrants yet again and use cities as political props in the process has made this meeting untenable, he went on to say. Uh, The White House said the meeting would still take place. It did with mayors who chose to participate. We are disappointed that a number of mayors have chosen to make a political stunt instead of participating in an important discussion with the president and his administration, the White House press secretary. Um, uh, Lindsay Walters uh, said San Francisco City Attorney Dennis Herrera said um, in November after the city filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration over the president's executive order that the president might be able to uh, tweet whatever comes to mind, but he can't grant himself new authority because he feels like it. Well, it is actually the law, uh, but nonetheless, the back and forth between the city, the attorney generals and the White House continues. The letters from the Justice Department state that jurisdictions that fail to respond will be subject to Department of Justice subpoenas. Sanctuary cities is a phrase typically used to describe jurisdictions that restrict local law enforcement from sharing information with the federal government about the immigration status of those in custody. We have seen too many examples of the threat to public safety represented by jurisdictions that uh, that actively thwart the federal government's immigration enforcement. Enough is enough, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, said. Well, the Department of Justice letter requests documents reflecting any orders uh, directly Directives, instructions, or guidance to your law enforcement employees about how to communicate with the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and or Immigration and Customs Enforcement. If these jurisdictions can't prove they are complying with federal law, senior DOJ officials 
say that the federal funding could be withheld and the Department of Justice may demand the return of 2016 federal funding some of the cities have already received. We've given them federal dollars, your taxpayer dollars, to cooperate with federal law enforcement, Sarah Isgar Flores, a spokesman for the Department of Justice, said today uh, they didn't have to take that money, but they did. And when they took it, they said they would comply with federal law. So what we're saying is if we find out that you're not complying with federal law, we're taking the tax dollars back. So apparently there's an arrangement that if you accept this particular uh, cash of money, then you're required to do certain things in order to be eligible. And if they fail to do so, the Department of Justice is saying you're no longer eligible for money you've already received or money that you might otherwise be eligible for in the future. She went on to say that President Trump might be able to uh, tweet whatever. uh, Well, that wasn't from her. That was from the uh, mayor I quoted a moment ago from uh, the attorney general from San Francisco. Well, the jurisdictions that received letters uh, today, according to the Justice Department, are Chicago, Cook County, um, New York City, the state of California, Albany, uh, New York, uh, Berkeley, California, Um, Well, there's quite a list here, so I won't go through all of them. Uh, I was looking to see if Oregon is also listed. It does not appear to be. All 23 of the jurisdictions were previously contacted by the Justice Department, which raised concerns about its laws, policies and practices. So we'll uh, follow that story as it continues. Well, President Trump fired back Tuesday night at Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer for offering then rescinding a deal to support border wall funding in return for an immigration package. That protects illegal immigrants brought to the U.S. as citizens. Crying Chuck Schumer, of course, assigning a name to the minority leader, understands, especially after his humiliating defeat, that if there is no wall, there's no DACA. The president tweeted around 11 p.m. Eastern time. We must have safety and security together with a strong military for our great people. End quote. Well, earlier Tuesday evening, White House Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley slammed Schumer during an appearance Um, uh, saying that he comes over uh, with a phony plan and a fake promise, Gidley said, referring to to Schumer. A Schumer aide confirmed that uh, the the leader withdrew his offer of a boost in funding for the president's proposed border wall. It was initially made during negotiations over the government spending bill with the president last Friday. The aide said Schumer's office says he pulled that wall offer on Sunday. But Gidley said they didn't uh, take the offer seriously, saying that the Democrat offered less than one-tenth of what was needed to to secure the border in his bogus negotiation. The administration wants $18 billion for the border wall. You can't rescind money you never really offered in the first place. After a three-day government shutdown, Democrats agreed to reopen the government after Republicans assured them the Senate would soon consider legislation that would protect the so-called dreamers. Well, during the press conference on Tuesday, a briefing at the White House, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said the president opposes an immigration proposal brokered by Republican Senators Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Jeff Flake of Arizona, along with Senator Dick Durbin. In a bipartisan meeting here at the White House two weeks ago, we outlined a path forward on four issues, serious border security and end to chain migration, the cancellation of the outdated and unsafe visa lottery and a permanent solution to DACA. Sanders said, unfortunately, the fake Graham-Durbin agreement does not meet these benchmarks. Well, an influential caucus of conservative Republicans is pushing House Speaker Paul Ryan to hold a vote on an immigration reform bill that has emerged as White House uh, favorite. The 150-member Republican Study Committee announced yesterday that it endorses the Securing America's Future Act. 
which gives legal status to certain younger uh, le- uh, illegal immigrants in exchange for a host of conservative immigration reforms. Critically, the bill contains provisions on the three concessions demanded by the president as part of the amnesty for recipients of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, border wall funding, limits on chain migration, and an end to the diversity visa lottery. The steering committee's um, uh, committee rather voted to back the bill, co-authored by Representative Bob Goodlot, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and called for a floor vote in the House, saying the Securing America's Future Act is the framework to strengthen border security, increase interior enforcement, and resolve the DACA situation. The steering committee said in a statement, according to CNN, we believe an eventual standalone floor vote is essential. We oppose any process for a DACA solution that favors a backroom deal with Democrats over regular order in the House. Again, we'll continue to follow the story. 31 minutes after four o'clock up next, we're going to talk with Nancy Piercy. She's the author of Love Thy Neighbor, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is a former agnostic, and she exposes secular hostility to the body that drives homosexuality, transgenderism, and more. Well, why the um, the call to love thy body, one might ask, which is the title of the book? Well, because today's most controversial moral issues are driven by an alienating hostility toward the body and biology. In her new book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, best-selling author Nancy Piercy, she goes beyond politically correct talking points to giving a riveting expose of the dehumanizing impact of secularist views of life and sexuality, demonstrating that they undermine human dignity and destroy human rights. A former agnostic, she has been uh, hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. She turns the tables on media cliches that uh, misportray Christianity as harsh or hateful. Fearlessly and with compassion, she makes a surprising and persuasive case that with uh, compassion, um, Christianity, unlike secularism, is holistic, sustaining the dignity of the body and biology, thus giving a secular uh, basis or rather a secure basis for human rights. Throughout the book, she uh, engages readers with searing stories of people wrestling with hard questions in their own lives, their pain, their struggles, and their triumphs. Well, a two-time winner of the ECPA Gold Medallion Award, Nancy Piercy is a best-selling author and speaker who serves as professor of apologetics and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. She is the editor of the Piercy Report and a fellow at Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. Previous positions included visiting scholar at Biola University's Tory Honors Institute, professor of worldview studies at Cairn University, and the Francis A. Schaefer Scholar at the World Journalism Institute. She's the author of the 2005 Gold Medallion Award winner, Total Truth, along with The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, and Finding Truth. She's also the co-author with Chuck Colson and Harold Fickett of How Now Shall We Live? She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Love Thy Body. Nancy Piercy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is such a timely subject, and I think uh, serious uh, Christians need a good resource to help them become better informed at articulating a Christian worldview on these subjects. So thank you for uh, for providing uh, just that. Well, thank you. I, I agree with you that it's very hard for us to engage these issues because we tend to deal with them one by one. 
and we don't understand that there's an underlying force driving all of them. And when we understand that issue, it feels it, it's a lot easier for us and we're much more effective at grasping the underlying secular worldview. And the underlying secular worldview is actually a disdain for the body. It's actually a, a denigration of our biological identity that runs through abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. And this gives Christians the opportunity to, to provide a positive argument, a positive case for the Christian view, which is really needed in our day. Um, you write uh, later in the book that the main reason to address moral issues is that they become a barrier to even hearing the message of salvation. And the point that you make is that our motivation isn't just winning the argument, winning the day. I think there, there's much to be said about making a, a, a good point. But in addition to that, as followers of Christ, seeking opportunity to share the gospel and helping uh, our hearers understand why it's important is also a, an underlying and perhaps the preeminent uh, reason for engaging. Right. And many people today are not saying, uh, I don't believe Christianity is true. Most of them are saying, why are Christians such bigots? That's really the main argument today is the moral issues. And so in Love Thy Body, I give lots of personal stories of people who found that Christianity was actually something that helped them transform their lives. For example, uh, the chapter on homosexuality in my book, Love Thy Body, starts with a young man named Sean, Sean Doherty. Doherty. And he was same-sex attracted. He became a Christian um, and decided, well, since I'm homosexual, I guess I'll just have to be celibate. But today he's married and has three children. So what changed? What he said is, I began to realize that my feelings were not really my identity. They were relatively superficial. Where my identity really was, was in my physical body as made in God's image and made in Genesis to, from the time of Genesis, from the creation, I was made to interact sexually with a woman. And I began to regard my body as my main source of my identity. And he said... I didn't try to directly change my emotions, but indirectly, what happened is I discovered my emotions began to change because, after all, our emotions do fluctuate. They can change. And he said, I came to realize that the most reliable marker of who we are is our physically embodied identity as male and female. So the point is that he changed his perspective and his behavior changed gradually as a result. The, the main worldview question in homosexuality is God created the differentiation between male and female, and in Scripture that's presented as a good thing. So the question is, do we accept the created order as a good thing, or do we reject it? Do we affirm the goodness of creation, or do we deny it? And that gives us a much better handle on how to approach people with these issues than saying uh, what we're best known for saying, which is it's wrong, it's, it's a sin, don't do it, thou shalt not. We come across as judgmental and negative and hostile. Instead, we should be coming across with God created you with the wonder and beauty of your physical body, including your biological identity. And we are affirming that and we're encouraging you to affirm that and to embrace that and to see it as a good gift from God. Now, when did the the notion of 
um, disconnecting the body as informing one's psychological identity began. Is this this isn't a, a contemporary phenomenon? Where does this this dissociation, if you will, come from? Well, certainly you're right. It's not contemporary. Uh, the Christian Church has faced it before historically, right from the beginning when Christianity started out. The early church was surrounded by philosophies that denigrated the body and the material world, philosophies like Platonism and Gnosticism. They treated, they created, uh, treated the world as a place of death, decay, and destruction, and even spoke of the body as a prison. They called it the prison house of the body. And in Gnosticism, uh, it was taught that there were several levels of deity, and it was the lowest level of deity who created this material world, in fact, an evil deity, because, of course, no self-respecting God would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. And so in this context, historically, Christianity was revolutionary. It taught that, no, it was the highest God, the supreme deity, who created the material world. And what's more, he pronounced it very good. An even greater scandal was the Incarnation. The idea that that same supreme deity entered personally into the material world and took on a human body. The incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the body. And finally, at the end of time, God is not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake. He's going to renew it and restore it and create a new heavens and a new earth. And so in the Apostles' Creed, we affirm the resurrection of the body. So this is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There is nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. And so that's why I Love Thy Body, my new book, gives tools to go beyond a negative message, which is true but incomplete, Mm -hmm. and deploy positive arguments showing that a biblical ethic is more appealing, more compelling, more attractive, more loving, more humane than any secular ethic. We're talking with Nancy Piercy. She's the author most recently of Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. An excellent volume. I would highly recommend it if you'd like to become uh, more articulate in addressing these issues from a biblical perspective. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Nancy Piercy. She's the author of Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. A great volume on the, uh, on the subject. Let's talk about transgender activists who say that they're discovering their authentic self. Uh, and their authentic self has no connection to the body. The real person resides in the spirit, the mind, the will, uh, and the feelings. And it's a, a challenge for believers to confront that misconception. What is the appropriate response to the the notion, and you've addressed it somewhat already, but the notion that the real person is disconnected from from the body that they have mistakenly been given? Right. It's exactly the same thing, that Christians really have a much more positive view, a higher view of the body. And this is contrary to most people's expectations, right? Most people think Christians are the ones who denigrate the body and who say, Uh, This world doesn't matter. And I recently read an article on abortion where the author said, oh, Christians are only against abortion because they don't want women to have a a healthy, happy sex life. So we're seen as anti-sex. Well, this is a great example where it's actually we need to turn the tables. The transgender narrative 
disassociates biological sex from gender. It insists that the authentic self is strictly a matter of inner feelings. And so kids down to kindergarten are being taught that their bodies are irrelevant to their identity and that the body does not matter. All that matters is your inner feelings or sense of self. So if, if a person senses some disjunction between the mind and the body, it's the mind that wins. But we should be asking why. Why accept such a demeaning view of the body? This is radically dehumanizing. If our bodies do not have inherent value, then that's a key part of our human identity that's being devalued. The transgender narrative is estranging people from their own body. So we need to turn the tables and help people to see that we're not against these views just to be negative, but it's really the Christian view of the body that is higher and, and gives more dignity, value, and significance to the body than the secular agenda does. You also make the point that in arguments about abortion, for example, or assisted suicide, that there is a a war against humanity itself, that the value of life itself, the body of the developing unborn child in utero, is devalued as well. How does love thy body, how does uh, this, this notion of a Christian worldview address these subjects from the standpoint that we do value humanity and the body? Right. It's exactly the same thing. And that's what's so helpful about Love Thy Body. Uh, My book is helping people to see that there's one common secular worldview that underlies them all. And if you master that, you will have the basis for arguing with anyone on all of these issues. So on abortion, bioethicists today admit that that the fetus is human from conception. The data from genetics and DNA is just too strong today. So they at least professional bioethicists, agree that life begins at conception. But what they say is, well, it's not a person. And as long as it's merely human, but not a person, it can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research, tinkered with genetically. It can be harvested for organs and then disposed of with the other medical waste. So the upshot is that the sheer fact of being biologically human no longer guarantees human rights, even the most fundamental one, which is not to be killed. That's a drastic devaluation of human life, and it affects all of us because we're all human. Essentially, it's it's an exclusive view, right? That's one of the buzzwords of, of the liberal world today is we don't want to be exclusive. Well, this is a very exclusive view because what it says is some humans are not persons. Some humans don't make the cut. They don't qualify for all the rights of personhood. It's the pro-life view that is inclusive because it says as long as you're human, as long as you're a member of the human race, you're in. You have all the rights and dignity of, a, of personhood. So, again, we need to turn the tables on, on the liberal secular view on these matters because it is the Christian view that actually grants higher dignity and value to human life than the secular view does. Now, how do you respond to what we often hear? Why not just let people live the way they want to? They're not hurting anyone else. Um, how should we respond when they say, the decisions I make affect me and uh, others who choose to uh, agree with me only? It doesn't really have a broader implication, so whether or not you disagree is irrelevant. Well, it turns out that the secular moral revolution, you know, though it's hailed as liberation, is actually expanding the coercive power of the state. 
And so in that sense, it affects all of us. It destroys pre-political rights. So take abortion. In the past, the law recognized the right to life as a pre-political right. It's something you had just because you're human. The law does not create it. The law merely recognizes it. But the only way the state could legalize abortion was to deny the relevance of biology and declare that some humans are not persons. What that mean is, means is the state has claimed the authority to decide arbitrarily which humans qualify as persons with the right not to be killed or take marriage. In the past, the state recognized marriage as a pre-political right based on the fact that humans are a sexually reproducing species. But the only way the law can treat same-sex same couples the same as opposite-sex couples is to deny the relevance of biology and declare that marriage is just an emotional commitment. But there are endless varieties of emotional commitments, so the state now claims the authority to declare arbitrarily which ones qualify as marriage. Or the only way the law can treat a trans woman, that is someone born male, the same as a biological woman, is to de deny that biology has any relevance and say that gender is a matter of inner feelings. And that's why today the state has begun passing laws and corporations are passing policies and schools are passing rules telling us whom we must call he or she. And actually, the next step, by the way, Georgine, is going to be parenthood. I have been reading articles by uh, homosexual rights activists who are lawyers, and they are now saying the next step is um, the, the state, up until now, the state recognized parenthood as a pre-political right, a pre-existing reality, something that follows on the fact that you have you, a mother and father give birth to a child. But the only way the law can treat same-sex parents the same as heterosexual parents is to deny the relevance of biology and to declare parenthood to be a state of mind toward the child, the parents' feelings, desires, and so on. So the state is now on the, on the, on the road to taking on the authority to define what a parent is, who qualifies one. So you will be the parent of your child only by permission of the state. So in every one of these cases, free political rights are being reduced to merely legal rights at the dispensation of the state. And what the state gives, the state can take away. So human rights are no longer unalienable. So this is why it's not just a matter of you and I making our own personal decisions. The state comes in and it recognizes those decisions and in the process is taking away the very notion of pre-political rights. Well, there's so much more in the book that time does not permit us uh, to talk about, but I would highly recommend Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. It's published by Baker Books. And uh, Nancy Piercy, once again, you've knocked it out of the park. Thank you so much for talking with us. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break for at the top of the hour, but we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Five minutes after five o'clock is the time. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton, engineering, James Blend, producing. I've been on a quest for quite some time for a chocolate brown umbrella. I went to every store in the Portland metro area trying to find a collapsible chocolate brown umbrella. Could found, I could find nothing. Then I went on Amazon. I thought, well, I'm going to order 
a chocolate brown umbrella. Because if you're wearing a, a brown outfit, you got a brown purse, you need a brown umbrella. I know matchy matchy is not supposed to be the thing, but I went to search and I found a brown umbrella. It finally arrived. Had an event on Sunday. I was wearing brown. It was going to be the debut of my brown umbrella. I packed it along, took it to the Jansen Beach Hotel, where it remains to this day. I left my br- I've been on a quest for weeks for a brown umbrella. Left it at the uh, at the hotel. So day before yesterday, on my way into work. Now the Jansen Beach Hotel is at the extreme opposite end of the city of Portland. We live at the, or we work at the extreme other end of the city of Portland. I mean, you cross the street and you're in Milwaukee. So I decide, I drop Dan Rice off downtown courthouse. I make my way down I-5, prime time, to the Jansen Peach Hotel, thinking maybe somebody saw it and turned it in. No sign of my brown umbrella. I tell you, that has bugged me for day. I just needed to say it. First outing, and I left my brown umbrella. I didn't even use it. I didn't even open it up because when I went from my car to the event, there was no rain. I just carried it with me because there was a possibility when I came back out, it might be raining. Left my brown umbrella. I I cannot believe it. Earlier today, I took a few moments, went back onto Amazon, the only place I could find a brown collapsible umbrella, and I bought a whole new one. I had just gotten it, and now I've had to buy a second one. Has that ever happened to you, Clark? Do you ever do that where you get something and you lose it right away. I'm so disappointed in myself and I'm so frustrated. Anyway, what? You're tell you've broken something. I thought you were telling me to go to break. <laughs> you know, this whole radio thing signals. You've broken something and that's frustrating too, but to leave it all together. It still had the tag on the inside that indicated it was a brand new umbrella. Somebody is enjoying a brand new chocolate brown umbrella. That I didn't carry today because I'm wearing brown boots. And it's, it's just been a distraction all day long. I know it's not really that important in the grander scheme of things. But I just had to say it. I had to get it out there. Now I can move on. And a new umbrella is supposed to come on Friday. I am underwriting the umbrella industry in the United States by buying uh, the same umbrella time and time and time again. But it could be worse. I mean, there are a lot of things going on in the world that are much worse than that. Oh, hey, I want to remind you, speaking of uh, real difficulties in life, we're going to uh, host Cross International here tomorrow on the program. They come every year. In fact, Cross maybe comes, do they come twice or they just once? They come once a year. In fact, the, the guys who come from Cross are now, I can see them through the glass at, to, at our sister station, The Fish, where they too are focusing their entire day on Cross International's um, uh, efforts to address the most severe famine that we've seen in a very long time that's going on right now in South Sudan and Kenya. The interesting thing is I sit in front of a TV all work day long and I'm, I'm watching the headline news. There's nary a word about this. Uh, they may cover it at some moment that I'm away, but you're not hearing much about what's happening, two tribes in particular. But we're going to focus on that tomorrow on the program as Cross International joins me here Uh, in studio, not just so that you'll be better informed about what's happening in South Sudan and Kenya, but so that you might consider um, helping to address the needs with your financial support. So I want to give you a heads up. That's coming up uh, tomorrow. And I'm looking forward to learning more myself. I've read the materials that they've given us, but I know there's a lot more to be said and a lot more to be um, learned about it. And responding is what we're hoping you and I together will do in that effort. So that's tomorrow on the program from 4 to 6.
Well, Donald Trump was the first presidential candidate since Richard Nixon not to reveal his federal income tax return. Uh, Some Oregon Democrats want to try to make him the last. And in fact, they've introduced a bill uh, that was on Monday in Salem uh, that would require candidates for president and vice president to give a copy of their most recent tax return to the Oregon Secretary of State uh, with written permission that the document can be made public. Alternatively, if they fail to do so, the candidate could fill out Oregon's standard income disclosure from uh, a form rather for public officials. That requirement would apply to candidates on primary and general election ballots and those wishing to be in the voters pamphlet. Now, I suppose Oregon has the freedom to deprive a uh, duly elected or uh, candidate from appearing on its ballot. I don't know if you know if you are the the uh, nominee for your party. But this is Oregon's way of saying, look, we're going to try to require that Donald Trump next time around, if he seeks a second term or anyone else in the future, that they're going to have to reveal their tax return. Uh, And again, it would it would apply rather to candidates on primary and general election ballots, those wishing to be in the voters pamphlet. Uh, I mean, for Donald Trump, he he didn't win in Oregon anyway, so I'm not sure it would have made that much difference to his campaign. But at least one political bigwig is already on board. And that's really no surprise. Governor Kate Brown. Governor Brown supports the principle of a financial disclosure requirement that presidential candidates ought to have. Brian uh, Hockaday, a spokesman for the governor, says in response to this effort. Well, Senate Majority Leader Jenny Burdick is the author of the bill. It was introduced on Monday. She said releasing tax returns is a time-honored tradition of transparency among presidential candidates. Trump changed everything. Although he wasn't the first, he really challenged the custom. And I think we need to take a fresh look at it, Burdock said in a phone interview. Well, she chairs the Senate Rules Committee where uh, Monday's bill was introduced. She sponsored a similar bill last year and testified as it at its hearing that it would affirm a longstanding tradition of financial disclosure among presidential candidates. Now, most candidates for high office, including president, governor and members of Congress, voluntarily release their tax returns, although not all. Without this vital information, Burdick went on to say, in her testimony, Oregon voters cannot accurately assess whether a, con- a conflict exists between a candidate's financial interests and duties of the president or vice president of the United States. The bill died in committee without a vote last time around. Burdick uh, said she thinks the uh, chances are pretty good that her rewritten bill can pass with the requirement that, at a minimum, candidates have to fill out an economic disclosure keeping the wording that would force candidates to reveal their tax returns is a heavier lift, she said. She went on to say that it's uh, it's hard to say where the discussion will lead, if there's a discussion at all. I mean, the session's only 35 days long at the most. Uh, the Democrat-controlled Oregon legislature could face legal troubles if it does pass an income tax disclosure requirement. Former Senator Ted Ferrioli said the Senate Majority Leader, at the who uh, was the Senate Majority Leader at the time a similar bill was debated last year, Year, submitted his testimony and opinion from the legislature's legal office saying the concept raises serious constitutional questions that do not have clear answers. So it's unclear how much power states have to regulate when presidential candidates can and cannot appear on ballots within their states, a legislative attorney said in that opinion. Well, a court could strike down Oregon's attempt to change the rules they uh, cautioned at the time. 
Well, the secretary of the Independent Party of Oregon testified on last year's bill that it is unlikely that states can add conditions to running for president. The U.S. Constitution lists three requirements to run, uh, be at least 35 years old, have uh, having lived in the United States for 14 years and be a natural born citizen. Well, Burdick said she doesn't think her bill can uh, would run into constitutional problems because it doesn't technically redefine the qualifications for president. It just applies to the people that the secretary of state can put on the ballot. So again, it's um, it'll be interesting to see what happens if this time around it gets a, a full hearing. At least 23 states have introduced similar bills, similar to the one Oregon has considered. New Jersey became the first to pass one last year. Last year, the California legislature passed a forced disclosure bill. But Governor Jerry Brown vetoed that. At the time, he said the bill went too far despite its political attractiveness. Governor Brown said there are political perils to states regulating what president presidential candidates must disclose to appear on ballots. Today we require tax returns, but what about the, uh, next year? Five years of uh, health records, a certified birth certificate, high school report cards, and will these requirements vary depending on which political party is in power, he said in a veto message back in October of last year. But it's been introduced in the Oregon legislature, and we'll see what happens. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Department of Justice filed an amicus or friend of the court brief at the Supreme Court, and they're urging the justices to overturn a California law that requires pro-life crisis pregnancy centers to post information about state-funded abortions. Well, the court has agreed to review the law in November. Well, that law is called the Reproductive Fact Act. Hmm. requires crisis pregnancy clinics to uh, post a bulletin informing patients that the state offers subsidized abortion access. The so-called FACT Act requires that the advisory appear in large font in a conspicuous place within the clinic. California has public programs that provide immediate, free, or low-cost access to comprehensive family planning services, including all FDA-approved methods of contraception, prenatal care, and abortion for eligible women, the bulletin reads. To determine whether you qualify, contact the county social service office at and it gives the phone number. The law also requires unlicensed clinics to post a second disclosure informing clients that they do not have a state license. Well, lawmakers say the law ensures that California resi- residents rather make their personal reproductive health care decisions, knowing their rights and the health care services available to them. A coalition of pro-life uh, clinics challenged that law, with the, uh, which the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, upheld in 2016. Well, the Justice Department grounds its uh, argument on a uh, different legal rationale than the clinics. The clinics argue the FACT Act should be subject to strict scrutiny, the most penetrating level of judiciary inquiry. The department argues that uh, the court need not use strict scrutiny as the law fails even more relaxed standards. Licensed clinics have a strong interest in refraining from speech that advertises third-party services they find morally repugnant. The brief, which was filed earlier this month, says of the first requirement, California has not subsidized substantiated any uh, particularized interest in having licensed clinics themselves disseminate the notice. However, the department argues that the second requirement is lawful, since California may legally require providers to disclose uncontroversial uh, information related to a significant state interest, in this case, licensing medical professionals. So the first half where they have to advertise abortion in their clinics may be unconstitutional, but uh, saying that they're not a licensed medical facility, which they're not 
claiming to be, uh, may be constitutionally. It merely requires service providers to disclose an accurate, uncontroversial fact about their own services, that they are not provided by a state-licensed medical professional. Well, the case, National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Bacara, has not yet been scheduled for argument at the high court, but it will be. The Trump administration previously intervened in similar controversies in favor of uh, religious objectors. And the Department of Justice filed a brief supporting a Christian baker seeking a First Amendment exemption to Colorado's public accommodation law back in 2017. That case, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, was argued in December. A decision is expected in June, the implications of which are much broader than that singular incident cited in the case. Well, parents are furious after a California elementary school posted a bulletin board that addressed issues like sexual identity and encouraged children as young as four years old to break out of gender stereotypes. What's a gender stereotype, Mommy? Well, the bulletin board at uh, Rancho Romero Elementary School also featured nationally syndicated sex columnist Dan Savage as a role model for children. Mr. Savage also hosts an annual pornography festival. Uh, says the uh, Todd Starnes radio show, for him to be um, a role model for four-year-olds to 11-year-olds is utterly disgusting, one anonymous parent who called in said. He's not someone you want to put up as an, at an elementary school. Well, apparently they do. The bulletin board included Mr. Savage's photo, along with the following quote, a lot of kids are bullied because of their sexual identity or expression. It's often the effeminate boys and the masculine girls, the ones who violate gender norms and expectations who get bullied, end quote. Well, in 2012, Mr. Savage bullied a group of Christian teenagers who walked out of a journalism conference after he launched a profane attack on the Bible. He called them, um, let's see, pansy um, expletive. Uh, but apparently that's OK bullying. And there was a time uh, he tried to infect a Republican candidate with a flu virus. And um, you can't forget about the time that he wished congressional Republicans would just expletive die. The man does nothing but spew vitriol uh, at people he does not agree with or like, like religious groups and conservatives, uh, she went on to say. Well, the parent who has a first grader and a fourth grader at the public elementary school said the gender bulletin board has created a firestorm of particular concern. The school used a unicorn as a propaganda tool. The so-called gender unicorn introduced children to concepts like gender identity, gender expression, uh, presentation. It also included words like sexually attracted to and romantically, emotionally attracted to. A unicorn, an object loved by little children, was used to lure them to the bulletin board, the parents said at the, uh, uh, at the, the program. It felt like it was a creepy way to lure a child over, the, uh, over to the board and confuse them about gender. Well, the San Ramon School Unified School District said the bulletin board is meant to highlight a monthly theme. For January, the theme for the month is uh, breaking out of gender stereotypes. So check out your kids' bulletin board. Um, The school has a parent-led inclusion and diversity committee that maintains a bulletin board to highlight a different theme each month when the rubric uh, that the students, staff, and parents are safe and welcomed on campus, the spokesman added. The school did uh, notify parts of... uh, rather modify parts of the display after parents raised concerns about age-appropriate content. They said the uh, initial content was only for 
uh, up for about four hours. The school also acknowledged there was a, a quote and a photograph of Mr. Savage, the porn peddler. The quote and photo were removed as part of the revision, the spokesman said. There are still two questions that have yet to be resolved. First, why is the school district using the unicorn to confuse children about things they ought to not to be confused about? And secondly, what was the school's leadership um, uh, smoking when they decided that a person like Dan Savage would be a good role model for four-year-olds? They're good questions yet to be answered. But in light of our conversation in the first hour with Nancy Piercy, you might want to pick up the book, Love Thy Neighbor, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, so you are prepared to intelligently address these uh, questions, these issues from a biblical worldview uh, in a way that is uh, very compelling. And then also this from Christianity Today. Imagine Generation Z. I didn't even know there was one, but apparently there is. Generation Z. They are the 70 million kids born between 1999 and 2015. And you probably picture them staring at their devices. A bunch of app-savvy, tech-addicted teens who never knew a time before smartphones. Well, again, quoting from Christianity Today, half of Protestant youth pastors consider technology and social media the defining factor of this latest generation. But a new study released today by Barna Group sheds new light on striking social and demographic trends. Teenagers in Generation Z are at least twice as likely as uh, American adults to identify as LGBT or as atheists. Now, these are important markers of identity among the youngest segment of America and pose new ministry challenges for the the church. And while the latest Gallup poll reported only 4.1% of Americans and 7.3% of millennials identify as LGBT, Barna found that 12% of Generation Z teens describe their sexual orientation as something other than heterosexual, with 7% identifying as bisexual. Well, of course, if you have bulletin boards when they're in school at age four, I would imagine there's some confusion about the notion that one's sexuality is and gender is fixed. But they go on. This generation is more sensitive to LGBT issues overall by design, with 37 percent saying their gender and sexuality is very important to their sense of self compared to 28 percent of their Gen X parents. And again, this is a generation that has uh, been subjected to a great deal of I would consider propaganda on the subject. Additionally, about a third of teens know someone who is transgender and the majority, 69 percent, say it's acceptable to be born one gender and to feel like another. Though teens exploring sexual identity have long been a part of American churches and youth groups, they haven't always been this open about their identity and willing to address it so transparency, transparently. Now, one would hope for that, at least. It's a new challenge for student ministry leaders because there is some more discussion in the public square regarding the issues, uh, says Ben uh, Trueblood, director of the student ministry for Lifeway Christian Resources. In the past, it was possible for difficult issues like this to be brushed aside or go unaddressed entirely, but that approach crippled the purpose of student ministry. Now student ministry leaders are forced to teach what the Bible says on these issues, as well as equip teenagers to respond biblically. Today's teens need that direction from church leaders as they grow more likely to identify as atheists and less likely to identify as Christian than their parents and older peers. And again, among Generation Z members between 13 and 18, 13 percent consider themselves atheists compared to just 6 percent 
of adults overall. Meanwhile, 59% of Generation Z identifies as Christian compared to 68% of adults. Only one in 11 teens is considered by Barna to be an engaged Christian, a category that a research organization uh, uses for these, um, or rather those who be- whose beliefs and practices are shaped by their faith. This new study shows that Generation Z has a highly inclusive and individualistic worldview and moral code. Uh, Brooke Hemphill, Barna Senior Vice President of Research, who released the study in uh, partnership with the Impact 360 Institute Teen uh, Ministry. They see the world and themselves in strikingly different ways than their Generation X parents. Now, that's not new, but in uh, the particulars, it is uh, certainly a departure from what we've seen uh, up to this point. A recent issue of Lifeway Facts and Trends magazine focused on ministry to Generation Z, calling it uh, the post-Christian generation, since so many are being raised by millennial and Generation X nuns who don't ascribe to a particular faith tradition. Previous generations grew up with some Judeo-Christian values of the past, at least as a reference point. Uh, One student minister uh, uh, said out of uh, Texas, among Christian teens, um, Barna found that most, 79 percent, feel comfortable sharing honest questions, struggles and doubts with their parents, which is a healthy development. Fuller Youth Institute has uh, pointed to this level of trust as crucial for helping kids grow and keep their faith. Every young person needs to know that all of their questions, complaints, doubts and struggles have a hearing. Uh, They need to know that you and God are going to uh, hear and hold the questions without pushing the young person away. One out of five teens in the Barna study imagine Christianity as negative, uh, negative and judgmental. Some of the biggest barriers to belief are the problems of evil. Uh, perceived hypocrisy among Christians and the conflict between science and scripture. Generation Z is likely uh, than older generations more likely to see science and the Bible as complementary. So interesting study. Uh, and again, the uh, the book written by Nancy Piercy is designed to equip uh, those who take these uh, issues seriously and their faith seriously to better understand and articulate a biblical worldview in a way that is not perceived as uh, judgmental, but challenges the core belief system that runs consistently through many of the issues uh, pertaining to life and sexuality. 31 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, leaders of conservative organizations are calling on Congress to pass a law to prevent taxpayer funds from being used to pay settlements to alleged victims of sexual harassment and other workplace violations by lawmakers. Their call for congressional action was spurred by the recent revelation that $17 million taxpayer dollars has gone towards secretly paying off such claims against members of Congress over the past 20 years. Now, more than 60 conservative lawmakers signed a memo and a letter on the 18th of this month penned by the Conservative Action Project. Among the signatories was Edwin Meese III, Attorney General under President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, several other Reagan administration officials and leaders of many nonprofit organizations. Mies is also the Ronald Reagan Fellow Emeritus at the Heritage Foundation. Well, the authors of the memo called the recent revelation of so-called hush funds shocking, offensive and profoundly wrong. They cited at least nine public polls taken in November and December that found the American public revulsed by taxpayer money going to settlements and to hush funds. The Conservative Action Project Coalition is encouraging conservative activists and others to conduct a grassroots campaign to prod members of Congress into taking the moral high ground 
and supporting the legislation. In addition to the memo, the coalition members sent a letter to House Speaker Paul Ryan and House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, urging them to address the issue promptly. Representative Ron DeSantis out of Florida He introduced House Resolution 4494 at the Congressional Accountability and Hush Fund Elimination Act. Don't you love the names they come up with for these things? Uh, The bill would prevent the use of public funds in settlement uh, cases involving sexual harassment or uh, sexual assault. The uh, Conservative Action Project said that uh, while any bill that takes action against uh, the Hush Fund would earn its support, its advocating passage of DeSanto's bipartisan bill would already Um, has 100 co-sponsors, 75 uh, Republicans, 25 Democrats. DeSantis' bill would amend the Congressional Accountability Act of 1995, which requires members of Congress to follow the same employment and workplace safety laws that businesses are already required to follow. Earlier this year, and I think it was a result of uh, all that's been going on for the last several months, uh, we are now required to um, attend, uh, was it two hours or four hours, to get through the sexual harassment course, Clark? Was that a two-hour course? I did it before the first of the year, the sexual harassment course that we were required to take. Was that a two-hour thing? I think it was about two hours. Anyway, we had to. you could do it individually on your computer, but we went through this, and these are the standards. You, you um, violate these standards, and you're out of here. But that apparently is not the case for people who are considered brighter than us, who represent our interests and are paid a whole lot more than we are. Well, DeSantis' bill would amend the Congressional Accountability Act. It would require members to follow the same rules that you and I are uh, required to follow. The bill would also require the Office of Compliance to publicly report the names of the perpetrators and how much tax money went toward each settlement. Notably, the bill would keep victims' names private. So it would not only move uh, look forward, but it would also look back, which is why there's probably pushback on this effort. The perpetrators would also have to pay back the money with interest, and the bill would prohibit the use of non non-disclosure agreements in future cases involving sexual harassment or sexual assault. And that's in cases involving members of Congress uh, whose interests are represented uh, within Congress. I suppose if there was a private uh, matter that that would not be the case. Well, Larry uh, Nasser, the uh, disgraced former USA gymnastics doctor who pled guilty to sexually assaulting young female athletes, was sentenced today to 40 to 175 years in prison. I just signed your death warrant. That's a quote, a quote rather, from the judge, Rosemary Aquilina, uh, after the, announcing the sentencing, which comes after more than 150 victims gave impact statements detailing the abuse they endured at the hands of the former team doctor and Michigan State University trainer. You don't deserve to walk outside of a prison ever again, she went on to say. Well, Nasser pled guilty to assaulting seven people in the Lansing area and had already been sentenced to 60 years in prison for child pornography crimes, rather. He's scheduled to be sentenced next week on other assault convictions as well. He will never see the light of day. The judge said Nasser's decision to assault was precise, calculated, manipulative, devious, and despicable. It is my honor and privilege, she went on to say, to sentence you. You do not deserve to walk outside of prison ever again. You have done nothing to control those urges, and anywhere uh, you walk, destruction will occur to those most vulnerable. Well, before his sentencing was announced, Nasser told his victims that no words can describe how sorry he is for his crimes. He said the testimony against him has shaken him to his core. I will carry your words with me for the rest of my days. Well, the 54-year-old was working at Michigan State University and USA Gymnastics. They trained uh, Olympians when he sexually abused the athletes, some 175 of them. 
His accusers, uh, which included U.S. Olympic gymnasts uh, and others, um, uh, described uh, his actions, which I won't go into detail. The accusers, uh, many of whom were children, said that they trusted Nasser to care for them properly, uh, were in denial about what was happening or were afraid to speak up. He sometimes well, again, I'm not going to go into detail. Uh, you are no longer victims. You are survivors, the judge said before sentencing. It stops now. Uh, speak out like these survivors. Uh, to Nasser, the judge called uh, his actions against the young women <clears throat> uh, it, uh, despicable, uh, these young women under his care. So, again, he will never see uh, the light of day. The president has uh, commented on it. The pope has commented on it. And now Europe is... Uh, trying to come to grips with what we've all come to know as fake news. And they've come up with a perfectly Orwellian response to it. And their zeal to stamp out so-called fake news, European governments are turning toward Orwellian solutions that are worse than the disease. The European Commission recently created a 39-member panel to explore avenues to eliminate fake news. On Twitter, it announced that it's seeking to find a balanced approach to protecting free speech and making sure citizens get reliable information. And isn't that what you want? The government making sure that we're getting reliable information. Hmm. Well, this follows in the footsteps of individual governments in Europe that have decided that the way to defeat fake news is to have the government decide what the truth is. Well, Germany recently enacted a law that allows the government to censor social media and fine related companies that won't take down what government officials deem fake news or hate speech. France isn't far behind. French President Emmanuel Macron I was trying to sound kind of French. He proposed a ban on fake news, especially around election time, conveniently, in order to protect democracy. And on Tuesday, UK Prime Minister Theresa May announced the creation of a commission to respond to fake news called the National Security Communications Unit. And in each of these cases, I have no doubt that they would never act in the government's own self-interest. A spokesperson for the May government said digital communications is constantly evolving and we're looking at ways to meet the challenging uh, media landscape by harnessing the power of new technology for good. The key problem with these proposals is pretty obvious, as the Washington Examiner highlighted in an editorial. One must ask who will decide which news is real and respectable on the one hand, and which, on the other hand, is fake and must be censored. The examiner asks before referring to George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984. Will it be bureaucrats in a censor's office in a bigger agency? Or will their work be so extensive and important that they will need a new agency of their own? Will they go the full Orwell and name the Ministry of Truth? As Alexis de Tocqueville, the famed 19th century French observer of American institutions, wrote of such government-controlled speech, whoever should be able to create and maintain a tribunal of this kind would waste his time in prosecuting the liberty of the press, for he would be the absolute master of the whole community and would be as free to rid himself of the authors as of their writings. Well, censorship of this sort is what the founding fathers feared. Now, they didn't anticipate the firestorm of information that we find ourselves exposed to. But this is what they feared. They knew that despite the problems occasionally caused by the proliferation of fake news and false ideas, it was far more dangerous to make the government the arbiter of what is true and false rather than citizens. Therefore, the founders created the First Amendment and instilled a culture that respected the individual right to free speech. This was the best and perhaps only way in the fallible world of men ultimately to get to the truth. 
There is um, ample evidence that the proliferation of fake news has far less consequential impact than doomsayers would admit. A recent study concluded that while fake news often spreads far with the help of tools such as social media, it has a shallow impact on what Americans believe. This begs the question of why near-authoritarian measures would be implemented that so badly undermine free speech rights. For all the worry over foreign authoritarian regimes manipulating other elections with propaganda by eliminating or rather implementing government-run commissions on fake news will simply be turning to repressive means to solve this perceived problem. Well, the proposed commissions to weigh free speech rights against delivering the correct news would likely have a shallow utility, even if they somehow could provide accurate stories to citizens. However, giving such panels the power to do so would be Tocqueville's worst nightmare, a license to impose government's views on the people and squash potentially legitimate dissent. Well, this is why it's particularly absurd that the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists, a group dedicated to promoting free speech for journalists, labeled President Donald Trump as the world's greatest threat to press freedom. The Federalist uh, David Harsony wrote Trump's attack on journalists, some of it uh, bought on by his own shoddy and partisan behavior, are often unseemly, unseemly and unhealthy. But it hasn't stopped anyone from engaging, investigating, writing, saying, protesting and sharing their deep thoughts with the entire group. And though Trump has proposed strengthening libel laws, a more traditional way of curbing intentional media falsehood, his administration has made no widespread legal attack on the ability of Americans to disseminate news and views. Saying mean things on Twitter isn't an attack on free speech, but censorship by any unaccountable government board certainly is. For all the hyperbole and hysteria following the coverage of the president and other fake news sources, it has ultimately been our celebrated friends across the pond who've decided to take an axe to free speech cloaked in the soothing rhetoric of protecting democracy. At times like this, we can be thankful for the founders and the First Amendment, but they shouldn't lull us into thinking that these terrible ideas won't make their way here, too. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Super Bowl is coming up, what, in a week or two weeks? And the NFL has decided they're going to reject a veterans group uh, with the hashtag Please Stand. It was an ad. Well, the National Football League rejected this uh, ad for the Super Bowl um, from the nonprofit American Veterans, or AMVETS, it features the phrase, hashtag, please stand. Well, NFL Vice President of Communications Brian McCarthy explained, the Super Bowl program is designed for fans to commemorate and celebrate the game, players, teams, and the Super Bowl. It has never been a place for advertising that could be considered by some as a political statement. That's sort of an interesting uh, statement. So allowing NFL players to kneel during the national anthem isn't a political statement. But of course, they're paying them rather than being paid for that political statement. Joe Cianelli, who's the national director of AMVET, said that he was surprised and disappointed by the NFL's decision. The NFL said it does not want to take a position on that, really, but not letting us run an ad, we think. Uh, they are, in fact, taking a position, he correctly observed. Well, AMVET's national commander, Marion Polk, noted, and I'm quoting, freedom of speech works both ways. We respect the rights of those who choose to protest, as these rights are precisely what our members have fought and, in many cases, died for. Again, we're talking about veterans. But imposing corporate censorship to deny that same right to those veterans who have secured it for us all 
is reprehensible. Well, this is the same NFL that refused to let the Dallas Cowboys wear helmet stickers, paying tribute to the five Dallas police officers who were ambushed and murdered in 2016. And this occurred a month before the kneeling protests began. So once again, the NFL has fumbled the PR ball all over fears of offending, well, one group of the population. Never mind the fact that the league's viewership, uh, the ratings have dropped 10 percent this season alone. And nobody likes a double standard. And I thought this was rather interesting, a note to end on. A letter emerged on Tuesday that was purportedly written by a former inmate at Alcatraz, who, along with two others, managed to escape the island prison only to vanish without a trace. My family many, many years ago visited Alcatraz, and that was one of the most intriguing stories from that tiny island, looking out over the vast sea between it and the mainland, wondering what might have happened to those who escaped. The running theory about the inmates fate is that they um, they died shortly after stepping foot onto the cold waters that separated the prison from San Francisco, but their bodies were never found and their story remains a mystery. Prison officials and federal agents, they insisted at the time that the escape of the inmates, brothers John and Clarence Anglin and Frank Morris, that they perished. CBS San Francisco reported that if obtained, a letter allegedly written by John Anglin, the letter contains an admission of escape and an explanation of the inmate's fate. My name is John Anglin, the letter reads. I escaped from Alcatraz in June of 1962 and my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it. That might be. Uh, that night, but barely. The letter continued, if you announce on TV that I will be promised to first go to jail for no more than a year and get medical attention, I will write back to let you know exactly where I am. This is no joke, end quote. Well, the letter was sent to the San Francisco Police Department's Richmond station in 2013, the report said. The station said it obtained the letter from an unnamed source. The FBI tested the letter in 2013 for fingerprints, but reportedly said results were inconclusive. The three prisoners were serving sentences for bank robbery when they executed their escape plan uh, using stolen spoons, dummy heads and a raincoat raft. Um, Their exploits were turned into a movie in 1979, Escape from Alcatraz, clever name, starred Clint Eastwood as Morris. Well, U.S. Marshal um, Michael Dyke, who inherited the unsolved case in 2003, told the Associated Press in 2012 that he didn't know whether any members of the trio were still alive, but he had seen enough evidence to make him wonder. That evidence included credible reports that the Anglin's mother for several years received flowers delivered without a card and that the brothers attended her 1973 funeral disguised in women's clothing despite a heavy FBI presence. The report pointed out that today Morris would be 90 and that John and Clarence, the brothers, would be 86 and 87, respectively. The federal government closed Alcatraz as a prison in 1963, just a year after the men's escape. John um, Cantwell, National Park Service ranger, told the station that the Federal Bureau of Prisons said they, um, they drowned once they got off the island and were swept out to the Pacific. End of story. Of course, he doesn't know that, but it sounds better than... They escaped and they're living happy and full lives off the island, inspiring inmates who were at that time still imprisoned at Alcatraz um, to engage in further mischief.
Well, tomorrow, as um, you may know, is our Cross International Radiothon, and we're looking forward to drawing our attention to two tribes in particular in Kenya and in South Sudan who are facing one of the worst droughts, one of the worst humanitarian crises since 1945, the year that the United Nations was established. Uh, It is... um, taking the lives of hundreds of thousands and uh, could take the lives of millions. And while that is an overwhelming prospect that a little radio station in Portland, Oregon, uh, could make any difference at all to those who are suffering at this very moment. Uh, The drought has gone on for 18 months and they're not expecting any rain and there's no um, no indication of how substantial the rain might be when it comes in March or April. That's what's expected. But then again, One never knows. So it's a very serious situation. And while we cannot uh, take care of all of what's happening there, we certainly can do a part. And KPDQ, along with our sister station, The Fish, who, in fact, today has spent its entire day focused on this effort, along with radio stations, uh, Christian radio stations all across the country, are spending time focusing our attention on this crisis that really we're reading and seeing very little about. And for the magnitude and scale of what's happening there, it really is rather surprising. Now, I suspect part of the problem is that we see so much hardship. We see so many natural disasters, uh, starvation and uh, things that deprive people of their freedom that we can become calloused. And it's overwhelming to us to consider all that's going on in the world. And we're facing our own uh, concerns right here at home. Well, tomorrow we're going to focus our attention with uh, two representatives from Cross International uh, on these, um, these two countries and two tribes in particular within those countries who have suffered the worst. And I uh, would encourage you, as I have throughout this week, to take them some time to pray for this uh, this part of the world. Again, we're talking about a segment of Kenya and South Sudan, where the suffering is the greatest. And as you're praying for those relief workers who are there on the ground trying to minister to their needs, and those mothers and fathers who look into the eyes of their desperate and suffering children, that we would be able to respond in a way that will express the love of Christ. And I'd also appreciate it if you would just pray and, you know, Lord, is there something I should do? We can't respond to everything. I understand that, that sometimes you feel a a very strong call to respond to a particular ask. And I would ask that even now you would um, begin to to pray and consider what role you might play. We're going to be asking listeners for a gift of $60. And my understanding is we'll go into greater detail tomorrow. But my understanding is a gift of $60 can provide sufficient nutrition for a child for five months in that area. Now, we're in January now. As I mentioned, they expect rains uh, perhaps as early as March, more likely April, if at all. And that would sustain uh, a child through that period. Uh, The rain comes. That doesn't mean things sprout and suddenly there's food and and water. But it does mean that there's the possibility moving forward that that will uh, be the case. So we're asking you to uh, to prayerfully consider how you might uh, give to this effort. And again, that's tomorrow. Cross International will join me here in studio and we'll uh, we'll give you some important details about what's going on and what for us as a remote part of the world, people whose um, territory we probably know very little about, but whose lives are hanging in the balance. And they're hoping that we will um, will deign to help.
I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. If you joined us in the second hour of today's program, I would encourage you to check out the, the Georgine Rice Show podcast at kpdq.com. Nancy Piercy was my guest. Her book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, one of the best resources available from a Christian perspective on those subjects. You can listen to the conversation. I would encourage you to get the book um, and check that out. Hey, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.